0: And to be honest, it was like World War I. At the airfield, there was duckboards everywhere, mud, slush, crap.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we
2: were out it. Oh, I did feel a lot of regret. My friends were still getting
0: killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite do often. Do I lead under fire? And
1: that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to spoil up. you be resilient to get War itself time. is horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. What you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country? The
0: volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line.
1: Michael Greenaway served in the Australian Army for 36 years. He was in the Royal Australian Army Ordnance Corps and spent most of his career working in supply. He deployed to Namibia, Timor, Iraq, the Solomon Islands and Afghanistan as part of peacekeeping and military operations. Michael spoke with Angus Horden about highlights from his career and the vital role of supply in allowing our armed forces to do what they do.
2: I'm Angus Horden, and today we're speaking with Michael Greenaway. Michael, thanks very much for joining us.
0: No worries. Thanks very much for the invite, Angus. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
2: Michael, could we start off and you provide us with a bit of a background with regard to your early childhood?
0: Born in uh, 24th of November, 1954, in a Royal Women's Hospital in Victoria. My parents at that stage lived in Ivanhoe. And in 1959, they moved to a suburb of Melbourne called Eltham. So I spent all my childhood years growing up in Eltham and um, managed to get work there. My primary school there was St. Our Lady's Help of Christians. That was my primary school uh, taught by the nuns. Uh, I then moved on from there to St. Joseph's Technical College, Abbotsford, another suburb of Melbourne, also a Catholic institution run by. Brothers uh, was influenced a bit there by the teachers at both those schools so I left St Joseph's in 1970 so I started there in 1967 left in 1970 from there I gained employment at Altham as an apprentice panel beater uh, stayed there till 1974 and then got married.
2: So Michael when you were at school I believe you were part of the Cadet Corps.
0: Uh, that's correct. Correct At um, St. Joseph's Abbotsford, they had a cadet unit, which um, we were more or less encouraged to join after Form 1. So Form 2 we joined.
2: And how did you find cadets?
0: Uh, I found cadets very enjoyable. I mean, um, the instructors there who were like CMF, I suppose, they were back then, um, they were very engaged and encouraging and um, passed on some valuable tips in life as well as um, military uh, traditions and so forth.
2: Now, had your family beforehand spent any time in the military, like your dad or your granddad?
0: Well, my grandfather, I believe, from dad's tales, he joined the Royal Navy as a boy seaman in 1915 and he was uh, still in the Navy in 1929, I think, and then he passed away. And what about your dad? He was an orphan from the age of six. So he was in a naval orphanage until um, his grandmother, I suppose, rescued him. And then from there, he lived in, a, in Wales in a little town called Brexham. And I think the only way he could see himself getting out of there was to actually join the army. So um, I don't think his father's service had too much influence because he didn't really know him at that point.
2: And in the army, did he um, you know, excel or specialise in any particular departments?
0: Um, Yeah, when he joined up, he was uh, allocated to the artillery. Just like in Australia, the artillery had their PTIs were part of that regiment. Um, He became a uh, PTI. From there, he he had a few little medals that he used to bring out every now and again for his uh, diving and boxing and swimming. So he was quite, I suppose, an athlete back in the day.
2: So growing up with a dad that was athletic, you know, military what sort of influence did that have on you?
0: Uh, well, growing up, he was always um, talking about how great being in the Army was for him. Like He um, had a great camaraderie, I believe, with his, um, the blokes he used to train as a PTI. I mean, I don't see them, I don't see, remember, PTIs being that great, but <laughs> they're socially engaged. But apparently the boys really liked him and he, and he really liked it. So he had, he had quite a few good stories to tell about um, his time there.
2: Yes, I know certainly the, the PTIs, you know, always drilling you and exercising you weren't always the most popular guys, but
0: certainly uh, they got you fit. <laughs> they certainly did, yeah. that's for sure.
2: Now, Michael, you mentioned that you got married um, back in 75, 76, I recall. What was the setting then?
0: Well, I married my um, first childhood sweetheart, I suppose. <laughs> so we were married in 1975. We had a bit of an extended honeymoon and then came back to Victoria where i commenced panel beating at Clifton Hill. But I must have been um, whinging or whining about wanting to get in, have given the army a crack. So Heather just went off and organised an interview with me with the local recruiting unit. So that was late 75, I think. Julie went off to, I believe it was in Darabin, I think, the recruiting office back then. I went in there and the um, recruiter, who was a, probably what we call now a crusty old... Staff Sergeant. He was um, most emphatic that I joined for six years, not three, because if if you sign up for six years, you get a lot more opportunities. But I thought, well, three. if I don't like it, three years is probably long enough for him to keep control of me. So I joined the Army Supplement, or ARAO, as it was called then.
2: So Michael, let me get this straight. So how old were you when you got married? Uh, I was 20. So you're 20 and you're moping around at home, doing your panel beating. Your wife decides that She's going to help you get into the army, and then you're off to what I'm guessing Kapooka for
0: three years. What happened there was um, I got my call up paper, I suppose you call it. They were accepting me on the 28th of April, 1976. So jumped on the, did my oath of affirmation or loyalty, jumped on the bus, and then headed off to Kapooka to do my three months or 12 weeks training. (laughs) Yeah, good. I won't call it indoctrination, I'll just call it training.
2: It's funny, my my son suddenly did his three months at Kapooka a couple of years ago and and you never forget that experience.
0: No, not at all.
2: Tell us, Michael, you start this army career, where does that sort of, uh, after your training, where does that sort of take you?
0: My march out day at Kapooka just happened to be my first wedding anniversary. So I was always quite happy that the army put on a band and a parade and a bit of a luncheon for me for that special occasion. (laughs) But um, from there, we um, were—I was allocated ordnance corps, Royal Australian Army Ordnance Corps—and from there, we were um, sent off to um, the School of Ordnance at Bandiana, which is located at uh, Wodonga and Albury, but it's on the Wodonga side of the river. So I spent um, probably—I think I was there for nearly uh, July, August uh, till September because there weren't that many courses available to do. So we've been holding the team for a while.
2: And also, Michael, I mean, you're getting into the Army in this sort of peaceful, quieter time, I should say, and you spend really the best part of the decade doing a lot of training and a lot of work in Australia at all the various bases, that, you know, Moorbank, Randwick. Basically, you're working your way, you know, up the system, and your first deployment is in 1984. Can you tell us about your experience in the long-look exchange between Australia and the UK?
0: Back there, I'd already been um, recommended to go once in 82, which all, which didn't happen, and then um, I was recommended to go then in 84. So that's an exchange between, back then I was in the trade of a vehicle storeman, and the English or the UK Army exchanged the same type of trades. I was fortunate enough that they had a vehicle stormman coming over, so I took his place at a unit called... Um, central vehicle depot at Aschurch. So that consisted of leaving in July and we came back home in December. So while I was away on that, we took part in Exercise Lionheart, which at that stage had been the um, largest, I think it was amphibious um, undertaking since the Second World War, because we actually departed the UK, went over to Europe to engage in, um, so it was multinational uh, exercise. So we were at Germany at that stage and then moved on to Denmark. So it must
2: have been exciting for you. I mean, after all this training in Australia to have a posting to the UK, you know, obviously a favoured, you know, posting deployment, you know, for you and your wife?
0: Uh, Yes, my wife came over, uh, I think it was the last four weeks of the deployment because we'd already come back from exercise by then. Unit there put us up in a married quarter together. So that was quite, I guess, unique. But um, with that, we got to travel around a bit and I, did manage to catch up with some of my, um, well, my grandmother, uncles and aunties, so that was nice as well.
2: So, Michael, after your UK deployment, you then start a series of overseas postings, which is really quite extensive. I mean, there's not many places where we've been that you weren't at. So let's start in 1990. We had elections happening in uh, Namibia. Can you tell us about your involvement
0: there? Okay, with, with that particular deployment that was with UNTAG, the United Nations Transitional Assistance Group. Predominantly, we, we went over in the last portion of that uh, deployment in assistance with 17 Construction. We were actually boots on the ground, so to speak. So we went over as, the I'd imagine, the first FET to bring all the equipment back home, or to assist them bringing them back home. We took off to Johannesburg. From there, we went to Windhoek. Which was the capital of Namibia, and then we moved off to Grootfontein. From there, we had to meet up with the rest of the equipment at a place called Wolves Bay, which the South Africans actually own. So it was an enclave within where we were, Southwest Africa. South Africa had a little enclave that so they owned the wharf, so we had to get passport in, visa, and out every time we went in. So. Um, yeah, it was quite entailed getting in and out of there because the South Africans didn't really want us in there at that point because they saw South West Africa as part of them, not independent at that start. Well, by then the elections had been on, so um, that had already been, independence had been achieved.
2: And how did the elections actually transpire?
0: Went without too much fuss, although there were people there trying you know, rabble-rousers, trying to influence people and cajole. Yeah, influenced them on how they on how they voted, but I don't believe there was a lot of that. But we were on the fringe at the end end of it, so we we're only catching snippets of what went on. So after the elections,
2: you're then off to Timor when that all
0: erupts. There was a bit of time between there, but um, yeah, I, fin- I was at Land Headquarters, and uh, I just marched in there at Randwick. uh Sorry, Vic Barracks, Paddington. Yeah, I got the call to go, so I had about two months' notice to go. So um, it was all pretty fast. To get over there. But um, once over there, it was settled in all right. But at that, at that point of time, I guess Australia had been enjoying, I suppose, the Defence Force, a uh, long period of peace that was starting to ramp up around 99, 2000.
2: So I, I imagine it would have been, you know, to be frank, you know, very exciting to actually go on something real that we were going as a major force. You know, you had uh, General Cosgrove in command. And um, you were part of the first push.
0: Um, well, I was not in InterFed. I came in after InterFed. They transpired into the UN, uh, becoming a UN engagement at that point. So, yeah, it was quite quite interesting. I mean, I'd been at a place called Moorbank at the NSDC. We'd been supporting them for about twelve months at that stage, I imagine. Uh, so it was quite good to actually. When I was working in ops then, so it was quite good to see where all this equipment had been going and supporting the troops. You're actually a part of it. So it was quite exciting, yes. So what were you actually doing on the ground over there? Okay, well, I was actually um, in logistics supply chain, so the operational supply chain. So Seymour was actually, if you want to look at supply chain, it was in a actual shell. And from there, we were issuing equipment to the forces that were stationed there. So I was actually stationed at a place called ASNCE, which is the headquarters So from within there, I was the district manager for the supply chain. So I was looking after all the troops, making sure they got what they wanted, hopefully in a timely manner.
2: (laughs) Michael, it's interesting what you say about supply. I remember my dad, um, who served with the Navy in the Second World War, started off in supply and then moved into cruisers. And I know it's often been said, you know, for every man on the front line, there's 10 back behind the scenes making it all happen. Now, you're coordinating and part of that big 10? I mean, would you concur with that sort of ratio?
0: I'd say, in real terms, it would be close to 10 because if you go back all the way to fourth line, which is back in Australia, where all this stuff comes from, so you've got your purchasing people, people who get it all together and sign it and bring it into, um, into theatre. And then in the theatre, you've got the people who receive it, make sure it's fit for purpose, and then make sure all the demands are met so they have to go out so... Yeah, it'd be close to 10, if not maybe more.
2: They'd
0: mm. look after the person in the field.
2: So a year later, after leaving Timor, you're then in the Middle East in Baghdad.
0: Well, what happened there was I, um, yeah, I got posted back to a place called LSF, and from there I was about 12 months there, then I was posted to Laverton in Victoria with uh, a team called the Deployed Logistic Information System Support Team, or d for short. So from there, these things were starting to ramp up now. So Baghdad had kicked off. I guess the second, the second phase of the special operations group was drawing all their equipment out. So it was all coming back through Baghdad, which we called uh, Jod 3. Back home in Melbourne, where I, where I just left, Laverton, we were actually responsible for making these supply districts with all the warehouses in them. All the, um, without getting into all of it, all the different stock codes that went to populate what we thought they wanted in theatre we created the shell then we actually went in at that point that was to support Operation Falcon so we went in to support that we actually went in with the forward team was already there so we were actually coming in with the main supply group so from there we sort of built with those guys of course we sort of got things up and running with regards SDSS slash with the supply chain.
2: And sorry, sorry. What, and what was your first experience of Baghdad?
0: Well, when we were on the plane, because we weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to fly in uniform, we had to fly-in series. So there's a fellow who I knew standing outside on the plane and he looked quite warm. The sun was out, blue sky, and then as soon as we stepped outside the plane, it was absolutely freezing. So we found somewhere to shelter. So our, our time there was actually quite cold. Um, and It was, um, to be going in there with the guys like, straight up it was quite intimidating because um, you did realise you had this big responsibility to get the equipment in and then out and then just make sure everything was working okay so our main role was uh, getting stuff into theatre was quite simple it's getting stuff back out of theatre once it breaks getting a replacement and then get it back home so it can get repaired if it needed to go back home. Quite a large-scale effort, really.
2: And did you experience any mortaring or bomb attacks when you were there?
0: Our first night in Camp Victory, that was probably the second second rotation in. Our first night at an actual established camp, uh, yeah, we experienced the first night. We were warned that uh, they like to come in, scoot and shoot. So we went, oh, yeah, OK. Not being on the business end of a mortar at that stage. So we were all nicely tucked up and, um, yeah, around 2 o'clock, they let rip with a couple, and then we're all waiting, but we're all in shelter then. So then we're just waiting for the third one to come. And because they said it comes comes in threes, and then we were waiting for the third one, and it never happened. Mm. <laughs> so, effect that was probably the reason for it, and it um, had great effects. Everybody was up all night. And you were always doing something, there was always something to do. Being the district support fellow, Uh, There was always reports to run. There was always something to do keep you busy.
2: And typically, what sort of equipment were you working on mostly?
0: Uh, For me personally, I was working on um, laptop computers, doing the inventory, like electronic system support.
2: And what were the techos working on uh, with regard to vehicles and the like?
0: Uh, Well, they would have been working on um, long-range rovers. The SAS had their um, vehicles there in in theatre. Yeah, they were doing running repairs, uh, modifications, they were looking after their weapons, so there was a bit, those guys were pretty busy. So yeah, they they had long hours.
2: Because it's not long that you're in Baghdad, then they're pulling you out, and then you're over to the Solomon. So so what happened there?
0: We actually had to go deploy everywhere. There was um, a logistic footprint. So in each of all of these areas, there was, uh, as I said, Jods. So joint operational district. So each one was a inventory shell itself. So we we used to go in just to make sure all the equipment was coming in okay. Uh, Were there any hiccups with those guys doing their work? So Millis type or STSS type work. Uh, We also had to check on cargo visibility system because once the equipment is issued till it arrives, it's a bit of a black hole. Mm -hmm. So they developed a system called the um, CBS, so that you could actually track to see what was going through each nodule. So we'll node and it gave you uh, an idea of when it was going to arrive. Uh, In line with that, there was also another system called um, LNITS, which was Lotus Notes Intermediate um, Demand System. So that gave the commanders actually real-time reporting on where their item is within the supply chain. So um, that became quite useful in the end.
2: And when you were on the Solomons, did you have an opportunity to look around at the World War II wrecks and things?
0: We were at, um, I think the airfield was called, Anders Anderson or Anders, I mean Anderson. Anderson. He was the VC uh, awardee um, over there. He was the first, I think he was the first. He was a half colonel. I believe he his mob stopped the Japanese from advancing. So I think that's him. Memory serves me correctly. But um, we didn't get to go too far around. We were sort of locked into our area where um, where all the electronics were really.
2: So after the Solomons, you come back to Australia and you then posted to Afghanistan. Now. Before we go there, I'm just sort of thinking: whereabouts are you with your marital life at this stage? Because you're married, you have these deployments, and they just keep perpetually rolling, sort of thing.
0: My wife at that stage was in Sydney, and I was posted down to Melbourne, so I was there unaccompanied. So yeah, I I was keeping contact with her through uh, like electronic business, and uh, but it was starting to get a bit, was starting to wear on both of us. I think at that point,
2: Mm, understandable.
0: Yeah, yeah, between. um, 2003 and 2006, we were in the. Uh, we did a bit of work in the Middle East. Back then, it was it was a bit convoluted. The actual, because we called it the MEO, like the Middle East Area of Operations, rather than Afghanistan or, or Iraq at that point, because um, there were two different operations happening at the same time, and they were both centric at that early stage. They were both centric to within Baghdad, um, within the Middle East. There we had like five different areas that we were going to, not just Afghanistan. So we had places like um, the, U- the U.S. Air Force uh, base in Emirates. Uh, we had another one at uh, Bahrain.
2: So you're supplying uh, materials to um, what, mostly our special forces guys or?
0: Uh, no, it was um, not just those. Those. There was um, four RAR were there. You had five were there, RAF were also involved. So even though we had all the three different services, um, it was only us as in D list that were actually doing the um, supply chain management. So we were quite, we were quite busy. There was three nucleus of us and then we had probably a team all up of about eight. So where we were stationed at Laverton, we could call on other people if we started getting swamped, uh, we could call on these other guys to come and give us a hand. Um, to go into those areas. Yeah.
2: And how did you find the Special Forces guys to work with?
0: Uh, they were quite good. I mean, um, I met up with a couple, uh, as I said, when I was on Op, uh, before Op Falconer. They, they were really standard worth, just wanted it straight, had a good sense of humour when they allow it to come out. <laughs> but, um, no, they, they were very professional. Um, the fellows we were dealing with directly were their loggies and they understood the system, but, they were often unbelieving that we could make, meet their, uh, our supply times could meet their supply times because a lot of their stuff, they were, um, uh, I won't say backdooring it, but they were going straight back to their um, home unit to try and get stuff in. So we were trying to convince them at that point that our supply chain was just as good, if not better, than theirs. So we've convinced them in the end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? But uh... Yeah you know, they tend to want to use their mates rather than, you know, using you as the go-to guy. I mean, you're stationed there to do exactly that. And how did you find, I mean, just trying to keep equipment, you know, in the Middle East, you know, in the in the desert environment, how did you find that?
0: Uh, that was quite intimidating or quite hard. Obviously, lots of sand everywhere. Plus, every time, like, they had their equipment and they had it modified how they wanted it, which didn't always meet how the Ramey guys wanted it. Kept. <laughs> so it was always a bit of a battle there. But I mean, um, they were fairly, they were treated rough because they had a tough, a rough and tough job to do. But I think the boy, the you've boys kept them up to speed most of the time. Yeah.
2: So you're in the Middle East, you know, for quite some time. I mean, back in 2003 and then Solomon Islands, and then as you say, in 2004. So when you eventually finish in the Middle East, you come home, but again, You're not staying at home?
0: Uh, No. We were uh, off enjoying our, um, I suppose, New Year's Eve celebrations when um, or Sumatria got hit with a tsunami. So we were called in, I think, we were called in New Year's, either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day to come in and start cranking up um, another JOD district for um, Sumatria. So we did that. Got that done in double quick time. We were getting quite by well, that stage. We're up to about uh, Jod nine, so we'd already had, we'd already created eight. We have we always had one spare, always one ready to go. So um, we loaded up what we thought we needed. Had some um, discussions with uh, headquarters Jock. They were the guys for all the info, so they would pass that along. We get stuck in, create it. I then went up to Ten FSB to help them to gather the data, the load all the stock codes, electronic data into the JOD, into their warehouse, set up an SCA for them, which is a self-contained little unit thing where you could put stuff and electronically move it all. So we had all that cranked up to go. Those guys were um, really under the pump because they they were on Christmas stand down. They also had their postings out of people and the new postings of people coming in. So they were really under the pump of trying to man up, which they, which they did, but it took them a little time to get it all done. So then it was all set, ready to go. And I said to the OC there, I said, okay, I'm, I'm off back to Melbourne. And um, he said, have you got your bag here? I went, oh, you never leave home without my packed bag. And he said, well, you're coming over. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I finished up. Uh, I think I was over there for about like, two months. Which I had no idea I was going on that one. So, yeah.
2: And Michael, how confronting was that seeing that devastation and death firsthand?
0: Well, when we when we arrived, we were at, again, we all went in, I was with the first push. Um, there was a forward team already there. They'd set up, like for logistics, they were set up in Manda, I think. But we were there with the guys going straight in. We were set up the first couple of nights on the airfield. And to be honest, it was like World War One. At the airfield, there was duckboards everywhere, mud, slush, crap, just everywhere. But um, we had had lightning and thunder of what not going off in the distance, which you know looked like gunfire. So it was very easy to think, is this what World War One? I- One was like that first bit was confronting. Then we went off into the actual towns, and that was bad. The water had just receded out, I guess, so you could see the water marks everywhere, uh, body bags everywhere people who they were so going going on a bit, uh, people who had been hastily buried in orange body bags. Uh, we had a few big downfalls and they were popping back up. So that was confronting. Everywhere we went we're in open, open back trucks. So then you get caught behind a, we call them a, a body truck. Uh, they have bodies on them. So you'd be following them for ages with the smell. So yeah it was pretty it was pretty bad.
2: I imagine that would never
0: leave you. I guess out of everywhere I've been, that's probably the most confronting, um, to be honest, because you had no... Well, they had no control over it. It was just devastating everywhere. People lost everything.
2: And actually, probably, Michael, with respect, it was, besides being your last overseas deployment, it was the most significant from what you could actually do. I mean, what they needed was logistics and supply and support, and that was you, you know, rather than soldiers out there fighting.
0: Uh, that's, That's probably... Correct. Yes, we, um, to be honest, we probably cleaned up um, about three or four buildings so people could live in it. We just about move in, and then the Indonesians would come in and go, no, we're taking that over now. So we cleaned everything up, got it all whatever, and then we moved in. It was a um, it was either a girls' orphanage or a girls' school. So we moved in there and um, got that all. Prettied up, so to speak, and then they in, Indonesians came in again. And our boss just went, That's it, you can go away, we're not moving. So it was good that he had he stood up to them because they were quite intimidating that they wanted to take over the building. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we got um water, we had uh, water come in so they could get fresh water with their um iso um osmosis machines. So the engineers were there doing that, so that was um that was good to see. So, Michael,
2: when you uh, actually leave um, Sumatra, you return to Australia and you then have a series of postings around Australia, you know, before you eventually, you know, discharge. Tell us what um, what's keeping you busy until you, you finished.
0: Okay, so when I got back from Sumatra, I was still there till uh, with D-list till uh, the end of 2005, perhaps a little bit into 2006. And from there, I was deployed down to or posted down to Big Barracks, Melbourne. So I arrived there in mid-2006. Uh, again, what D-List was doing with, so they were taking everything from departure point of Australia into theatre. Our role at, I was with a place called LCAT, so Logistics Compliance Insurance Team. We stood up to go and check everything in what we call domestic Australia. So we was doing supply chain operations for the three, three services again, but within... Australia. So we were busy travelling around a fair bit with that as well.
2: On the 6th of May 2012, you discharged from your service of 36 years.
0: I couldn't believe how fast retirement had come up. CRA. I nearly got caught out the first time when it was 55 and I thought, holy hell, what do I do now? But luckily the Chief of Army had a, um, came to my rescue, so to speak, and he changed the um, CRA to 60. So I had another five years
2: When you finished with them at age 60, what did you um, do with yourself then after spending 36 years dressed in
0: greens? (laughs) So, what I was fortunate enough that um, a position, my army position, was actually becoming folk, being civilianised. So, I applied uh, for that position and was lucky enough to win the job, I suppose. So, I left work on the Friday in uniform, which in itself was quite sad because of the people. I mean, the job was great, but it's people in the job that make it great. So Monday morning, fronted up, same desk in civvies, same phone number, and um, continued working there as a public servant in the same job. So I was pretty fortunate.
2: So you actually sort of kept a bit of the team association then?
0: Um, yeah, which was great because I um, had formed a close friendships with um, a number of those guys and a lady who came to work with us as well, yeah. funny you
2: say that because... Michael, every guy and girl we've spoken to and you ask them, you know, what was good, what was bad, they all to a person will say leaving their mates was the worst. Unless you've been military, you don't get military. You form a a brotherhood with these people. 36 years of it. I mean, that's that's pretty solid. So uh, I think you have actually transitioned very well compared to some of the others who haven't been as lucky as you in that capacity.
0: Uh, I've, I'm very lucky. Like um, some, some would say though, just quickly, some would say I'm a bit of a slow learner. <laughs> yeah. However, that said, um, I, I was just really fortunate in the fact that the people who I continue to serve with today, most of those are ex-military, so we still have that lingo. We still can recall funny things that happened um, over the years, uh, and it's good going to some of the JLUs um, that we used to visit because. Um, there's people there who, like in Moorbank, I was there for 14 years. So I went, go back there. There's all the old, not so many now, but all the old cronies you can catch up with and, you know, tell lies and have a, have a laugh. So it's it's good stuff.
2: Michael, um, are there any other reflections that you'd like to share with us again after such well, a lifetime in service?
0: For anybody who's sort of listening or contemplating, if you're young enough, join up and have a go because it is, it's a great life. The friends, well, I've made probably... Four like five lifetime friends. So I always figured if you had, if you could count that many on one hand, you were doing okay in life. Uh, unfortunately, one of those guys has passed away, just recently, which was a bit of a loss. But um, the other four guys, like we we get together, you just have, you just never, you never remember the bad things or anything like that. It's always the fun you had and what so and so did or what what happened here. So. Um, yeah, on reflection, I, I think my most memorable was doing the um, the D-list stuff because I could actually put into practice what I've been training to do, uh, and it was great. If someone had a problem, because the spear throwers, like the guys in the front, they don't get it. All they want is their stuff, and if they don't get it, they just go, "You're useless." They don't understand all the background that happens. So if you can get rid of some of those barricades, which there are, there are a few back back home, but overseas we were able to get rid of a few of those to make it more smooth without so many bumps. So that I, I really think that was my best time in the Defence Force was helping those guys.
2: So, Michael, I'm hearing that you'd probably want to do this all over again if you had the chance.
0: I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Would I do it with the same core? Absolutely. The people that I met throughout there have been fantastic.
2: Michael, I'd like to thank you very much for coming and sharing your life with us today, and it has been a life, 36 years, as I said, with all those deployments, multiple deployments, and again, the ability to keep working in the same trade in Civvy Street has been quite exceptional, but it's quite clear to everyone who has served that they're only as good as their supply. Yes. And it's great to hear the supply story, because too often we hear about, you know, the guts and the glory, which, is always very gripping and very traumatic and very uh, testing but without the supply you know we couldn't achieve what we do and you epitomize that so well thank you Um, on behalf of us all we'd like to thank you very much for coming and talking to us today and especially thank you for giving your life to this nation 36 years of service is just simply outstanding and we're very grateful for you and all your mates who you represent and thank you for your time on life on the line today
0: thank you very much the most enjoyable thank you
1: find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join the conversation on social media at life on the line podcast on facebook and instagram and at lotlpod on twitter Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.